Well, good morning. It's good to see you here. Uh, if you've been following along, you'll know that we are in Judges 7 this week. So that's what we'll be walking through this morning. Go ahead and turn there. Um, I'm not going to read it all up front, just for the sake of time. But we will be walking through it pretty closely. Uh, so head over there. You can follow along with me here in a little bit. On June 30th, 1859, Charles Blondin became the first man in history to walk on a tightrope across the Niagara Falls from the United States into Canada. The tightrope was suspended 160 feet high off the ground on one end and 270 feet high on the other side. It was 1,100 feet long and three and a quarter inches in diameter right above the raging waters of the falls. It was considered, of course, a, a miraculous feat. If that wasn't impressive enough, he kept doing so a number of times afterwards. He even started to add other stunts on his walks. So sometimes he would do it blindfolded. Sometimes he'd do it on stilts, sometimes carrying something on his back. At one time, he even stopped and he sat down midway while he had a meal. He became so famous for this that the name Blondin, it became synonymous with tightrope walking. So much so that many used the name Blondin to describe others in the sport. And so all of a sudden, there was now a famous tightrope walker uh, in Sydney who became known as the Australian Blondin. Or a female tightrope walker who became the female Blondin. Tightrope walking itself, as a form of entertainment, it was now called the Blondin business. One day, the story goes, he crossed the Niagara Falls with a wheelbarrow. When he got to the other side, everyone's there, they're waiting for him, they're, they're cheering his name, hooting and hollering, cheering, just going crazy for this guy and, and all these crazy feats that he was pulling off. And so seeing their enthusiasm, he decided to ask for some audience participation. He looked out into the crowd and kind of hyping them up, right, asked, do you think I can carry a person across in the wheelbarrow? Of course, the crowd, they had just watched him do it, they had just physically watched him push a wheelbarrow across the Niagara Falls on an 1,100 foot, three and a quarter inch tightrope. There was no question that Blondin can do it. So they all yelled back at him, yes, yes, of course we think you can do it. It was then that Blondin posed the question, who will get in the wheelbarrow? You can imagine how quickly the crowd settled down. Of course, nobody got in. This story highlights an overwhelming truth about life and about ourselves, that it's one thing to concede some facts of the matter. It's one thing to say, yes, I believe this is true, but it becomes a whole other ballgame when our life gets put on the line. There's a whole other, dare I say, supernatural level of trust that is required to say, not only do I believe in this person or thing, but that I trust them with my very life. Because here's the thing about the story. The question that Charles Blondin was asking was not, do you think that I can do it, right? That part was obvious. They knew uh, the legend. They knew what he had done, what he could do. They just watched him do it, for goodness sake. But that wasn't the question. The question he was asking was a much deeper, much more penetrating question, which was this. Do you trust me? Are you so confident that I can do it that you trust me with your life? That's what he was asking them. I certainly to get into that wheelbarrow and be pushed 
on a tightrope across the Niagara Falls, I'm getting scared just thinking about it, would be to put a tremendous amount of trust into not just what they'd heard and seen with their own eyes, but trust in who this man was and what they believed he was capable of. This question, it's the exact same question that Gideon's faced with in Judges this morning. It's the exact same question that we as readers are faced with for ourselves as well. As we're going to see this morning on two different levels, uh, for Gideon and for us as God's people and also readers of the text, there's one question that God has for us that I want you to be thinking of as we walk through the story this morning, and it's this. Will you trust him? Will you trust him? Not just do you think that he can do it, but do you really trust him? Even against all odds, against everything that your heart and your mind and your emotions and feelings would tell you is right and true, will you trust him? As we said, to really be able to answer this question, we first have to know who we're dealing with, right? The part of the story that I left out is that there was one man who let Blondin carry him across the tightrope. There was one man who trusted Blondin enough to get on his back and let him carry him across, and it was his manager. His manager. Ask yourself, why would his manager let him do this? The answer is simple. It's because to his manager, Charles Blondin was much more than a circus act who could do cool tricks for entertainment, right? He was a friend. He was a colleague. He understood the care and precision that Blondin put into all these feats. He trusted the man because he knew him and he'd had an upfront look at who he was. If we're really going to be able to trust God on this level, we first need to know who he is and understand how and why it is that he does what he does. So these are the questions we're going to ask of the text this morning. Two questions for our time this morning. One, what is God like? And two, will you trust him? First question, what is God like? Second, will you trust him? That's what we want to answer. Number one, what is God like? How is he presented to us in this text this morning? We're going to get two answers to this first question. So let's begin walking through the story to begin uh, to see how we can answer this question. Follow with me starting in verse one here. It reads, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and everyone who was with him, got up early and camped beside the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them, below the hill of Moriah. So Gideon, now he's built up some courage. You'll remember quickly uh, from chapter 6, Gideon, he's been called by God to lead uh, the Israelites out over the Midianites, and he's afraid, right? That's what we see. Just like Israel, who at the beginning, uh, we see them making hiding places from the Midianites, Gideon is afraid. He begins questioning God's wisdom in choosing him, the youngest one from a family in the weakest tribe of Israel, right? He questions God's goodness and presence with his people in the midst of their affliction. So he starts asking for all these supernatural signs, the uh, dry fleece on the wet ground and then the wet fleece on the dry ground. He asks for God to give him these signs to, to prove himself to Gideon before he's willing to move forward. And here in chapter 7, right away, we see that these signs, they have given him just enough to start moving forward, right? He's gotten some of the assurance that he needed at the end of chapter 6 there. Only his world is about to get rocked yet again. As if the call itself and the roller coaster of emotions that we experience with Gideon at the beginning of the story 
were not enough, the Lord now says to Gideon in verse 2, you have too many people for me to hand the Midianites over to you, or else Israel might brag, I did it myself. You can kind of feel Gideon's heart kind of sink here, right? (laughs) What does this mean, right? Too many people. (laughs) Lord, I'm not sure about the direction that this conversation is heading in right now, right? What's about to come next? Verse 3, now announce in the presence of the people, whoever is fearful and trembling may turn back and leave Mount Gideon, okay? That's, sorry, Gilead. So that's not bad, not that bad after all, right? Who wants scared battlemen anyways? But then it reads, so 22,000 of the people turned back, but 10,000 remained. <laughs> 22,000 people. Let's do some, just some quick math. I know some of you aren't the best with the whole addition and subtraction thing here, right? So they had 22,000 people that left. Now they have 10,000 people that remain. That's 32,000 people they start with. 22,000 people left. That's nearly two-thirds of the army that just leaves. Imagine how Gideon is feeling now. Gideon, who is at first afraid because he himself is the youngest person from a family in the weakest tribe of Israel, who just seen sign after sign from God to be convinced to move forward with this battle, he now watches 22,000 of his 32,000 battlemen walk away. The Lord's not done yet. Verse 4, then the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many people. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. If I say to you, this one can go with you, he can go. But if I say about anyone, this one cannot go with you, he cannot go. So he brought the people down to the water, and then we get this test, right? It says, separate everyone who laps water with his tongue like a dog. Do the same with everyone who kneels to drink. And the number of those who lapped with their hands to their mouths was was 300 men, and all the rest of the people knelt to drink water. So the Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300 men who lapped and hand the Midianites over to you, but everyone else is to go home. So just think of this picture for a second now. Now there's 10,000 men on their way to battle. Uh, 9,700 men, they kneel down to get a drink, attentive, aware of their surroundings. They're, They're ready for something to go down, right? Even as they stop to take a drink, they're not going to be taken surprised by an enemy attack. They're always ready to go. Contrast that with these 300 men who, when they get to the water, they get on all fours, they start lapping up water with their hands and their mouths. They can't see behind them. They can't see beside them. They are completely vulnerable. They have no idea what's going on around them. And now just ask yourself, numbers aside, right, Uh, Which group would you want to choose from to walk into a dark back alley with? (laughs) Huh? Who are you choosing to go into a fight with? I know who I'm picking. It's not them dudes, right? Those are the ones that God says Gideon can keep. God says you don't get to keep the 9,700 who know what they're doing. You're only going to get the 300 who clearly don't know what they're doing. They are clearly not cut out for this. That's who you're going to take. At this point, you can feel Gideon thinking something along the lines of, you've got to be kidding me here. Here's the thing about these actions on the part of the Lord here. Um, They're not exactly the best strategic moves for a big battle coming up, right? Uh, Do you guys remember the, um, 
Holiday Inn Express hotel commercials, they had the jokes like, uh, if you stayed at a Holiday Inn Express hotel last night, uh, then you're for sure smart enough to figure out whatever situation you're in right now, whatever it is. So one was like, uh, somebody passes out in front of you, right? And you're with a group of people and nobody knows what to do. And so you walk up and you, you grab the defibrillator and you say something like, I'm not a doctor, but I stayed at a Holiday Inn Express hotel last night. I got this right. Well, listen, I'm not, not like an experienced military person or anything, okay? I'm not trying to front. I've never been in the military. I've never been in battle uh, or in war. I just want to admit that up front here. I don't have firsthand knowledge or experience in these things. But let me tell you something. I've stayed at the Holiday Inn Express Hotel, okay? I got this right now. And even more so, that's not even, let me tell you something else. Not only have I stayed at the Holiday Inn Express Hotel, I've been playing Call of Duty all up in there, all right? So I got this right now. Here's what I know about battle. Now that I've proven my credibility to you, let me share with you two things that I know about battle. One thing is that there's strength in numbers. And the second is that you need to be attentive. When you're going into a battle, you typically want to have more people than the other side. That's just pretty simple, straightforward. Everyone can kind of figure that one out, right? Not too complicated. Every movie, game, war story, fight, it's very clear that the more people you have on your side, the better. But you also want to have people who are paying attention. You can all have all the people that you can find, but if none of them know what's going on, it's not going to make much of a difference. Battle time, it's a time of high alert. You, you always have to be aware of where you are and what's happening around you if uh, something doesn't seem right and whatnot. So you want people who are, yes, trained and skilled, but at the very least, attentive to their surroundings and what's going on. And again, these seem like rather obvious uh, military strategy points to make, right? This doesn't even qualify as like beginner level war theory. This is all prereq stuff. Only the Lord doesn't seem to get it here. Apparently he ain't played no Call of Duty and he ain't stayed at no Holiday Inn Express Hotel. He doesn't really seem to get this whole strategy thing. And so who is he here? What kind of commander-in-chief is this here? Is this really what he's like? Is he really this foolish to think that this could work? How do we answer the question, what is God like, from this part of the story? The key to answering that question, it's found all the way back at the beginning, where the Lord himself, he tells us exactly what this is all about. He already told, told us what this was about and why he was going to do it. Right at the beginning of the scene in verse 2, the Lord says to Gideon, Gideon, you have too many people, but here's the point. He said, you have too many people to go into battle with, or else Israel might brag, I did it myself. There's so much to take away from what's going on here. It's a bit of a uh, statement, is it not, about the condition of God's people, that when facing an army of 135,000 the Lord doesn't want to send them out with 32,000 because if they win, with God's help, of course, they might brag about having done it themselves. But this is how God chooses to work through his people. And so the first thing we can say about what he's like, that he is absolutely committed to his own glory. He's absolutely committed to the idea that he gets all the credit because he's the only one deserving of all the credit. And he wants that to be abundantly clear to anyone who's watching. 
All throughout scripture, we see God setting up these, these drastic situations with these dire circumstances, these situations where the odds are completely stacked against his people only to deliver them so that when it's all said and done, you look at the events that have unfolded and you recognize there's no way that could have just happened. Over and over and over again, he uses the smallest means possible to accomplish the most massive of feats. And he does it this way so that both his people and the watching world would look at what's happened and be faced with the conclusion that it had to be God. There's absolutely no way that small, tiny, incapable little Israel did this on their own. It had to be their God. Christian, God is not worried about making you look good. He's not worried in the slightest about his people being high and mighty and powerful in the grand scheme of it all. This is why he said to them, again back in Deuteronomy 7, he said, the Lord has his heart set on you and chose you not because you were more numerous than all peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. The picture we get of God here is one who chooses to work through lowly people and he makes them as lowly as possible so that there's absolutely no denying the fact that he is the one who saves. These are the conclusions, by the way, earlier on in the conquest narratives. When Israel, they begin moving into the land that God had promised them. Joshua 21, 43 and 44. says, so the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to give their ancestors. They took possession of it and settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side according to all he had sworn to their ancestors. Again, Joshua 23, verse 3. You have seen for yourselves everything the Lord your God did to all these nations on your account because it was the Lord your God who was fighting for you. It's one of the major indictments on the people here in Judges that they've forgotten not just how they came out of Egypt, but they've forgotten how the Lord delivered them out of Egypt. He did it, and he is intent on getting all the credit that's due to him. But Gideon here, Gideon is worried about the victory. But God's not worried about the victory here. That's small stuff to God. The victory has already been decided, right? It's as good as done. What he's worried about is being recognized as the author of it all. He's worried about receiving credit for what he is sovereignly bringing about through his people. He's not concerned about the glory of his people, not in the slightest. He's concerned about his own glory and that it's recognized in his people. And friends, can I just pause and say that we, we miss this here. We can't miss this here or else we won't be able to answer the question we ultimately want to answer, which is, will you trust him? If you don't understand that God is supremely about his own glory and that you're, you're just a mere means of displaying that, not through your power and strength, but actually through your weakness... You're going to get this all wrong and you're not going to be able to trust him. We fall in this in all sorts of ways. We begin to trust God based on what he gives us. We trust God based on our our success, right? Success that we've defined for ourselves. We trust God based on our circumstances, our health and our finances. If those things are neat and tidy, then yes, I can trust him. We trust him when everyone likes us. But the moment that we feel pain and rejection and the shame of 
other people's opinion of us, then all of a sudden it's, where are you, God? God gives and God takes away. God is not your genie and he's not here to make you as happy and comfortable as you can possibly be in this life. That's not what we see him doing here with Gideon. Or rather, instead, he wants to whittle the Israelites down to their weakest parts because it's right there that he's going to make his power truly seen. This is the Old Testament's way of preaching what Christ would ultimately say like this, my power is made perfect not in your strength, but in your weakness. And Christian, the very amount that you're willing to admit your weakness is the same amount that his power will be displayed in you. We get that backward, do we not? Let me say it again. The very amount that you're willing to admit your weakness is the same amount that his power will be displayed in you. That's what God is like. He is about his glory and as the all-powerful, almighty creator of all things, rightfully so. So what is God like? He's a God who is committed to his own glory. But he's also a God who is committed to his own method. That's the second answer to the question. God is committed to his own glory, and now we're about to see he's committed to his own method. Pick up with me again in the story, verse 9. Uh, the Lord now, right after having taken all of these men away from Gideon's army, he says, get up and attack the camp, for I've handed it over to you. Uh, but he also, once again, highlights Gideon's fear here. Gideon's afraid again, understandably so, Right? Verse 10, but if you're afraid to attack the camp, go down with Purah, your servant, listen to what they say, and then you'll be encouraged to attack the camp. And so he went down with Purah, his servant, to the outpost of the troops who were in the camp. And now the Midianites, Amalekites, and all the people of the east had settled down in the valley like a swarm of locusts. Their camels were as innumerable as the sand on the seashore. Notice the characterization here of the armies that he's about to fight against. There's just been this repetition in the story, right, of uh, 300 men, 300 men, 300 men in that first scene. And here it describes the other army in these, these overwhelming terms, right? A swarm of locusts. Their camels were as innumerable as the sand on the seashore. Uh, we see actually over in chapter 8, this army was one of 135,000. I think I said that earlier. Um, but right here, after having emphasized the the smallness of Israel's army here, the text, it doesn't tell us how many people they're fighting against. It just gives you this image of the sand on the seashore. Again, the author, he's trying to set this up in your mind as a situation with the odds completely stacked against Israel. There's no way that they can win this if not for God's intervention. We get this interesting uh, little account of a dream by a member of the enemy military, and this is the first window in how the Lord is going to save them. Uh, the text there, continuing on the story, it just reads, when Gideon arrived, there was a man telling his friend about a dream. He said, listen, I had a dream. A loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp, struck a tent, and it fell. <laughs> and the loaf turned the tent upside down so that it collapsed. Notice again just the imagery now in this dream. It's a, it's a loaf of bread that tumbles down and it crushes the Midianite camp. Okay, I don't know about you. Um, when I'm thinking about a loaf of bread, I'm not concerned about it crushing anything, right? Uh, when I've got uh, my load of groceries and I'm loading them into the car, I'm not worried about what stuff the loaf of bread is on top of, 
right? It's actually the opposite. I'm worried about the heavy stuff being on top of my loaf of bread, okay? Because it's soft and it's squishy. Uh, It can be easily deformed. But again, that's the picture of Israel here. Israel's an army of 300 going up against a seashore of camels and a swarm of locusts of men. They're like a loaf of bread in this situation. But the message is that the loaf of bread crushes this enemy. The conclusion from Gideon's friend in verse 14, it is what it should be. This is nothing less than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has handed the entire Midianite camp over to him. In verse 15, Gideon finally responds how he should have all along. He bows in worship, and he commands the people to follow him into battle. This is a turning point in the Gideon narrative. Gideon, narrative. Gideon now, uh, he becomes courageous, right? He becomes a man of faith, and we'll see soon that he, he actually does lead the people out to battle. From there it reads, Gideon then divided the 300 men into three companies and gave each uh, of the men, a ram's horn in one hand and an empty pitcher with a torch inside it in the other hand. Watch me, he said to them, and do what I do. When I and everyone with me blow our ram's horns, you are also to blow your ram's horns all around the camp. Then you will say, for the Lord and for Gideon. Uh, if we could, uh, just for a second, come back to me uh, playing Call of Duty in the Holiday Express Hotel. Uh, for a second. I already mentioned, right, although uh, not militarily trained or experienced, I know that you typically want bigger numbers in a battle, and you also want people who are paying attention. I also just want to mention here quickly uh, that when I'm getting ready to go into a fight on Call of Duty, I'm not picking a blowhorn or an empty pitcher, okay? I'm never picking a blowhorn or an empty pitcher. None of my weapon packages I put together have either of those items in them, Okay? And I don't think I've ever seen anybody else go with those options either. Again, it's just not a good military strategy to go into war with some blowhorns and empty pitchers. But can we just think for a moment, have we ever seen anything like this before? Because as readers, yes, we should be feeling the immense disadvantage that Israel is at here. And these details, they just kind of keep adding to that. We've also been reading the story up until now. And we know how God has been involved with his people and we know what he's promised, right? We've seen these things play out before. And so ask yourself just for a second, have we ever seen God send his people out in conquest with some trumpets? If we've read the story, we should be reminded of the battle of Jericho here, right? Where the people went out, not mighty with horses and chariots and and weapons, but marching in circles, blowing trumpets. How God brought about this miraculous victory through them just doing what he said, as silly as it may have sounded and looked to everybody. And so we have that image and memory in our mind already of God. Again, he's already, he's already worked through these small and humbling ways to bring about his promises to his people. And so now we're here and we're waiting to see if he's going to indeed keep doing the same thing. And what we see is just that. Verse 19 Gideon and the hundred men who were with him went to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch after the sentries had been stationed. They blew their ram's horns and broke the pitchers that were in their hands. And then they shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Again, it sounds a lot like Joshua and Jericho uh, with the the blowing of the trumpets and shouting. and, And sure enough, we see a chaotic victory 
similar to that of Joshua. Verse 22, it says, When Gideon's men blew their 300 ram's horns, the Lord caused the men and the whole army to turn on each other with their swords, and they fled. And so, Lord, he not only delivers victory uh, by this means of his people blowing trumpets and shouting, but he also causes confusion for his enemies. That's part of what we see. And this shouldn't come as a surprise to us either uh, for a few reasons. One, because this is not the first time that we've seen this either. In Exodus 14, when the Egyptians, they race out to pursue Israel in the Red Sea, it says the Lord threw the Egyptian forces into confusion so that their chariot wheels swerved and they had to drive with difficulty. But second, this is also how God has promised to give them the land in the first place. And it's how he's already begun to give it to them. In Exodus 23, God promises the Israelites that he's going to give them the land. And he says, in that place that I'm preparing for you, I'm going to throw all the nations you come to into confusion so you can drive them out. He promises this same very thing again. Guess where? Deuteronomy 7 again. The Lord says he's going to send all their enemies into confusion until they're destroyed. Then when they get to the land, we see this again. Joshua 10, the Lord threw them into confusion before Israel. He defeated them in a great slaughter at Gibeon, all the way up to Judges 4, just a few weeks ago, right? With Barak and Sisera, the Lord threw Sisera, all his charioteers, and all his army into confusion with the sword before Barak. Now the Lord does the same thing yet again here in Judges 7, and it's far from the last time we see it take place, right? 1 Samuel 5, 1 Samuel 7. For Samuel 14, Kings, Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, these are uh, their prayers that God would throw his enemies into confusion in the Psalms, a sign of his deliverance. There's an anticipation of this happening again later in Isaiah and Daniel and Michael and Zechariah. This is how God works. It's not about making his people high and mighty and making them the most dominant force in the world. He doesn't need that. No, he chooses the smallest people and the the tiniest force, and he gives them victory in these most unexpected ways that we as human beings would never come up with and could never accomplish on our own. That's the pattern. So what's the point here? What does this tell us about what this God is like? Well, it tells us that he is absolutely, completely, 100% committed, not only to his glory, but also to his method. The way that God saves here in Judges 7, the way that we see him work here in Judges 7, it's the same way that he's been working through his people, and it's the same way that he's going to continue to work through his people. He's going to work in these upside-down ways, ways that that we would not come up with, because again, what is he about? (laughs) Is he about making his people look good? No, he is above all other things about his own glory. So he doesn't make much of his people, he makes little of them. And then he doesn't deliver them by sheer force, he delivers them in in ways that only God could. Again, so that there's no denying that it is God who saves and that it's of no credit to his people that they can have deliverance. This kind of upside down nature of God's deliverance here, it's it's not just an old covenant in ancient Israel thing. It all culminates in the cross of Christ where God accomplishes the ultimate salvation of his people from the ultimate enemy. Sin, death, and destruction, not through a great display of power, 
but through a humble sacrifice of his son on a cross. Only this kind of God would save his people by sending his son to not only live perfectly, but through death on a cross. Only this kind of God would make his people like him by becoming like them. Only this kind of God would bring life through death. Only this kind of God would bring salvation and deliverance through a means as humbling and as small as this. And so in light of all, we've, all, all that we've said, the real question now stands. Will you trust this God? Do you believe this God? Do you believe that this is who he is? That he's fully committed not to, to your glory or to my glory, but to his own glory? And do you believe that he works not just in powerful and mighty ways, but in, in small and humble and unexpected ways? So there can be no denying that it is he who saves. Part of what we're fighting for through judges is not that we would emulate the judges, that we would see ourselves in them. And here we see Gideon who is, he's timid and he's afraid, who God approves himself to over and over and over again, yet he still won't take him at his word. Gideon wants to be assured not just of God's ability to follow through on his promise, but, but in himself, right, and what's available to him. He wants confidence not just in God's word, but in things that God provides him. He needs all the circumstances to line up before he's willing to move forward. And easy enough, we see a picture of our own hearts here. We too, like Gideon, are afraid. If we're really honest, we're afraid to trust God. We find confidence in the power and the status of our army, but when God begins to, to strip away the things that we trust in, and he begins to add other variables to the situation that makes us uncomfortable, we struggle. Struggle to really trust God on the basis of who he is and his word. No problem confessing with our mouth, just like the people who watch Charles Blondin walk across the tightrope, we have no problem saying with our mouths, yes, God is sovereign. Yes, God is almighty. Yes, he knows everything. Yes, he has my best, best interest. But friends, is it not true that the very moment that the circumstances seem to contradict what we think is in our best interest, when our circumstances begin to violate our senses of comfort and status and power and notoriety, do we not often begin to doubt God? As if that's ever what he was after. But the point that we should not emulate him, it's not just an anecdotal one, it's, it's textual. We need textual evidence to make a claim like that. So where are we getting this from? Again, let's, let's kind of zoom out and look more holistically at the book for a second. Uh, what kind of shift do we begin to see in this story compared to what we've already read in Judges? The story, uh, stories of the Judges, they've been fairly brief up until now. Uh, they've been fairly straightforward with how the judges, judges are portrayed. There's not much detail or conversation given about them, just kind of a record of events. And they're actually portrayed pretty well, right? pretty simple characters. They do good things and uh, they kind of improve Israel's situation and then they go away and that's about it, right? But Gideon here, he marks a shift in that pattern. 
here we have, we have three whole chapters on the story of Gideon. And in all that text, we don't just get straightforward facts and uh, records of events. We also get all this detail about him. We get these conversations between him and God and, and he and his friends. We see God interact with him on a personal level. We get an insight into how he's actually thinking and feeling throughout this whole thing. And the closer we get to him, the more holes we begin to see in his character. This now becomes part of the pattern of the book of Judges moving forward. We learn, we learn more about these judges, and because of that, we see that they, on a deeply personal level, are also part of the problem. Gideon, he starts off uh, pretty rough in chapter 6. Uh, he's probably mixed at best here in chapter 7, and he ends absolutely horribly in chapter 8, which we'll, we'll see next week. And this, this builds and builds, and eventually it culminates in the last judge, Samson, who is the most problematic of them all, right? He's got all kinds of character flaws. But it's right here with Gideon where the author, he, he strategically starts giving you more and more insight into who these people are. And in doing so, he's able to add to this downward movement of the entire book. Not only are the people continually spiraling downward further and further and further, but now so are the judges. The very fact that we see ourselves in them, it's, it's, it's self-indicative of the fact that they're, they're part of the problem. So don't try to be like them. Don't try to be like Gideon, hope for and look to emulate something, or should I say someone, far better than this. Gideon is not your role model. This feature of the text, it's not... It's not incidental, it's, it's intentional. And it's meant to force you to read the story in a specific way. What the author is doing in this book, by, by continu- continuing to portray things as worse and worse and worse, it's, it's creating in us as good readers of the text this deep sense of, of shame and despair and just sense of hopelessness for God's people when left to their own devices. As we've just been kind of discussing uh, judges in our in our small church, as just reading through it, uh, somebody commented that reading the book is kind of depressing. That's exactly the point. There's really nothing good happening here if we're understanding it properly. That's what the author intends to do: is he intends to make things look as bad and as dark as possible? Because this book, as a whole, it's an exposition of the human heart apart from God, on full display. And this story in the book of Judges, it's a, it's a turning point in the book, not for it to get better, but for even to, it to take an even sharper turn for the worst. And we're only in chapter 7. We keep reading, and it, it only gets worse from here. It forces us to realize that Israel has no hope apart from God's intervention apart from God graciously and miraculously keeping his promises to them, not because of them, but in spite of them. (laughs) And the more we see this happen, the more that we see the people as they reject God's word, they reject him as their king, forget about him, they don't believe what he said, the more we see these judges who are, they're timid and afraid and they have doubt and they're insecure and they're frail and they're, motivated by their own fame. They're vindictive. They seek revenge. 
the more we see all these things take place, all while simultaneously seeing the exact same thing in our very own hearts, we're meant to feel the exact same heaviness and weight and despair around our own sin as we do around what's portrayed on the pages of this book. The more we see ourselves in the messiness of this book, the more we're confronted with the reality that we too have no hope in ourselves. Judges paints a picture, not just of Israel, but of me. Reading it, it's like looking in a mirror. And as we rightly pronounce the judgment on them, that they have, they have no hope apart from God. That the only direction they can do, go on their own is down. We become more and more aware of that exact same reality for ourselves as well. While the text intends to do this to us, it also does not intend to just leave us there. We're not just confronted with a picture of ourselves. We're also confronted with a picture of our God. We're confronted with a picture of a God who prefers it this way, who continues to work and act in the same types of ways. He, he delivers his people against the Midianites via trumpets and shouting, just like he did at Jericho. He confuses the Midianite army just like he did to Egypt and in Joshua. He's a God who wants his people to sense their complete and utter helplessness before the heaviest parts of life. Not so they would be given to despair, but so that they would trust in him and give him honor and glory. <laughs> this downward movement, it, it strips everything else away. It forces you to not just answer the question, do I think God can do it? It forces on you the question, do you trust him? Do you really trust him? With your life, when things, when they can't look any worse for you. In the deepest, darkest parts of your soul and in the moments when you're, you're confronted with that overwhelming reality about yourself. That you're a wicked sinner and you're lost apart from God. When all you can see is your, your weakness and your insecurities, your imperfections. Do you still trust him to save you? Or do those things cause you to doubt his goodness to you? Those things cause you to doubt that God can actually save you. That he really will do it. Because the good news is this, it's that the way you read the story, it's the way that you can and should read your own life. If you can look at this mess of a situation with sinful judges trying to lead a sinful people, and you can trust God, not on the merits of the people, not on the merits of the judges, that's all being taken away. Not on the merit of what he gives them, because that's all being taken away. If you can trust him solely on the merit of who he is, and what he says, and how he works through his people, if you can take him at his word for these people, in this book and believe that he truly is going to keep his promises to them despite how terrible this looks for them right now, that you can do the same thing for yourself. You can do the exact same thing for yourself. That's the point of this.
believer, unbeliever, we all, we all struggle with the same things at the end of the day. But if you can read this story and you can see who God is, you can see how he works in his people and be convinced that he's going to save them, then you better believe he can save you too. It doesn't matter how far you've spiraled. It doesn't matter how far you're spiraling right now. You're never outside of his reach. The book of Judges is as bad as it gets. It's only getting worse. But we know, we know, we are, we are convinced that hundreds of years later, God sent his one and only son and he did it anyway. And it's because of that hope that we can we can see who he is and how he works and make, make sense of everything in our hearts that would cause us to doubt God and his goodness, and we can trust him with all of it. Worship team, you can come up. Charles Blondin's manager got on his back he let him walk him across the tightrope over the Niagara Falls because he had seen up close and in person who he was and what his method was. He had seen the pattern over and over and over and over again. So he trusted him. And in the same way, believer, unbeliever, you're witnessing what God is like this morning. You're encountering God in the story. And as you keep reading the story, are you going to be content to just state the facts of the matter? Are you going to be content to just say with your mouth, okay, I think God is capable. Or are you going to trust him? Are you going to trust him, not on the basis of the circumstances in your life, what he's given you in your life, but solely on the basis of what he says he's like and how he works. Are you going to trust him not only in your strengths, but in your weakness? We don't look outward at our circumstances or our lack of power because to doubt God. We don't look inwardly at ourselves and our inability to do this on our own and because to doubt God. We don't look inwardly at ourselves and see the fear and inconsistency in our hearts and be caused to doubt that God can or will save you. We look at him. Amen? We see him for who he is. A God who is completely committed, not to our glory, but to his glory. Who's completely committed to his method of, of working for his people. That it's precisely in our weakness that God wants to make his power seen through us and we trust him that's our prayer this morning let me pray and we'll, we'll finish in song Father we just thank you again for your word Lord uh, we thank you for the witness of, of who you are of how you move in the world Lord how you choose to work through your people Lord, we believe that uh, the God we worship here and now is, is the same exact God who, who called Gideon and led him out, who took the Israelites out with an army of 300 and, 
and defeated one of 135,000 who since the very beginning, Lord, you, you have not been intent on making much of your people. You've been committed to your own glory. You've not displayed that through your people in their power and might and strength, but in their weakness. So God, right, right now, right this moment, God, <laughs> help us to believe that. Help us to lean into those things. So often those things, those, those hard circumstances, those uh, weaknesses, in, incapacities in ourselves, they cause us to doubt you. They cause us to question you. But help us to lean into that and to trust you in them. Lord, you've been so, so good to us. Help us to believe that and live like it's true, Lord. Pray all these things in your name. Amen.